Acts chapter 19. Story is told of a grandmother who had in her garden a stone that was very special to her. The stone was too big to be moved anywhere, and periodically she would take sandpaper out and she would polish this stone. One time she's polishing the stone, and as she's sanding, she saw a thin layer of what appeared to be gold dust, dust on the surface of the rock. She'd never seen that before, so she started sanding harder and harder. And the more she sanded the rock, the more gold dust that appeared. It didn't take long, and her heart was racing. She thought to herself, this is what gold fever looks like. She worked tirelessly to accumulate more and more gold dust as she was sanding. Finally, she was exhausted from working so hard, and she sat back and she wiped her brow. And that's when she noticed that something was wrong with her wedding band. The top side was completely normal, but when she turned her hand over to the underside, she realized that her ring was nearly completely gone. She had sanded her gold wedding band completely off. Now, this is a sad story on on two fronts. Uh, Number one, you can imagine the shame and the regret that this woman had when she would have realized what what she did. She was in one moment dreaming over her newfound wealth and what she was going to do with that newfound wealth, and the next moment she's crushed under the weight of what has happened. That grandmother wore that ring for decades. It was her heirloom. It was her treasure, and now it's reduced to dust. But then that story is sad on on a second front because when I really think about it, how many times do I do the very same thing? In fact, how many times in my life have I repeated this grandmother's mistake over and over and over again? I squander treasures in pursuit of dust. I squander treasures in pursuit of dust. Now, we are nearing the end of our study of the whole Bible, um, and this is a year in which we have worked our way through God's Word. It's not going to be long, or we're going to be in Revelation, looking at what God is going to do in the future. But for today, what I want to do is focus on this thought. Throughout the Bible, it can be argued that you see the very same central core of sin at the heart of mankind. You see it over and over again. There's a spiritual battle that's taking place in the world, and I believe that there is one factor that, that is primarily responsible for that battle. And it's this, that at the core of sin is idolatry. At the core of all sin is idolatry. God created us to love and worship Him alone above all things. Our sin consists of the fact that we have chosen a bunch of things to love and worship more than God. And the whole story of the Bible is God challenging us in and rescuing us from our worship of false gods. So as you read through the epistles, the theme here keeps coming up over and over again. In fact, even if the word idolatry or idol is not specifically mentioned, um, the theme of idolatry is apparent in every ministry context that you see in all of the New Testament. Mankind in general believes that they know what is best in life, and then they do everything that they can to fight for what they believe is best in life. On the other side of the equation, you've got God who is holy and he is righteous, and it's only in him that we find true life. All of humanity is caught in this wrestling match against God. The sad thing is that our wrestling is futile because there is nothing in all this world that is more valuable or more precious or more holy than God is. 
The Apostle Paul wrote much of the New Testament. In fact, 13 of the 27 books was written by the Apostle Paul. And he spent his life doing everything that he could to convince people that their idols were worthless and that only in Jesus could a person find the significance that they longed for. Paul would go into city after city and start ministering first in the Jewish synagogues. And inevitably, he was rejected in those synagogues every single time. You see, the Jews considered the idol of their traditional Judaism as more important than the Son of God, the Messiah. Even though they kept proclaiming the Messiah is going to come, they missed him when he did come. We're going to celebrate Christmas here very soon, and that's the, that's the celebration of the coming of Jesus, the coming of the Messiah. Yet these contexts in which Paul ministered in were completely blind to the fact that he had already come. Paul would then move from the Jewish synagogue into the, Jew, into the Gentile homes. He would minister in the Gentile colleges, universities, where he would show them that their idols, their idols were futile and that Jesus was everything. Now, oftentimes, great numbers of people would follow Paul to Jesus, and other times it seemed like his ministry was fairly unsuccessful, especially according to human terms. But he was always faithful to confront the idols of the heart that people had whether that was in the Jewish setting or the Gentile setting. It didn't matter what it was. He always confronted the idols of the people's hearts. Today we're going to look at the story of the gospel coming into the city of Ephesus. And when it does, the idols of the people are challenged. And, and violence is actually the result of this, of that challenging of those idols. But before we launch into the story there in Acts chapter 19, I want to give a little background to the city of Ephesus first because it's so important to us understanding what's going on. Ephesus is one of the most wealthy cities in the world, was back then. It's one of the most wealthy cities in all of the world. They had a, um, it had a re- the region's central port for all of trade and, and travel would come in and out of Ephesus there. In Ephesus was found one of the seven wonders of the world. The Temple of Diana, or Artemis was the name, the official name. And what you see there on your screen is, is a little bit of a rendering of what we think today it might have looked like. One of these seven wonders of the world. Now, this temple was four times bigger than the Parthenon in Rome. It was absolutely massive. There's a statue that sat right in the middle of the Temple of Diana that was carved out of a meteorite that had fallen from the sky um, to the earth. The Ephesians believe that when that meteorite fell, it was actually Diana falling from heaven to give them blessings, prosperity, and good health. Much of the commerce in Ephesus was centered around the temple, the worship of Diana. People would come from far and wide, and they would bring their silver and their gold and anything that was precious to them, and they would give it to Diana so she would bless them the way she had blessed other people around them. The temple was a center of the banking industry. It was the center of the commerce industry. It was even the center of the political powers of the day. I cannot, there's no way that I can emphasize enough the importance of this temple of Diana And the impact that it had on the world at large, not just the city of Ephesus, but the world at large, no person or religion could come close to threatening the power of Diana in the city of Ephesus. No one. Until the gospel came to Ephesus. Today, for the first time, we're going to see this turning upside down of the city of Ephesus. The gospel came to Ephesus first. It didn't come through Paul. It came through a man by the name of Apollos. 
Now, Apollos is just a normal guy who heard the gospel when Paul preached it and God, uh, when Paul told him about it in the city of Corinth. So what Apollos did is he took the gospel from where he heard it there in Corinth and he brings it to the city of Ephesus. By the way, that reminds us that the tip of the gospel spear is found most often, not in the preachers or the missionaries. The tip of the gospel spear is found in the person who simply owns their faith for themselves and they take the gospel with them wherever they go. Apollos is a perfect example of that for us. A little bit later on, after the church had already started there in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul visits Ephesus. And as soon as he gets there, God begins this process of turning this city upside down. He begins doing some amazing things. So this is where we pick up Acts chapter 19. I'm going to start reading in verse 11. So follow along with me as I read. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and ap- or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. You talk about some power. That's something else right there. Even the hankies and the aprons are carrying the power of the Holy Spirit from Paul to sick people. That's pretty cool, isn't it? All right, continue reading. Verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you, that's a word right there, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. In other words, there's some people who are looking at Paul and they're seeing all the wonderful things that God is doing through them and through him, and they get jealous, thinking that maybe they could have the same kind of power that Paul has if they just use the same name that Paul is using, the name of Jesus. But how'd that work out for them? Verse 15, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, or I recognize, but who are you? <laughs> Talk about embarrassing, right? They're trying to throw this evil spirit out of this man, and the demon speaks back to these guys. He's like, hey, I know Jesus, I know Paul, but I don't have a clue who you are, so why would I obey you? By the way, here's another important lesson that we can learn, just a snippet here. If you know the name of Jesus, but you don't know Jesus personally, then don't dabble in spiritual things, because the power is found in knowing Jesus himself, not in just knowing about his name or knowing about him. Let's continue reading. What's the demon's response? Verse 16, And the man in whom the evil spirit, or was the evil spirit, leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This is the ultimate shame that a person can go through. One guy beats seven guys in a fight, and in fact leaves them naked and wounded. They're wounded because they just got the tar beat out of them, all right? So then um, we we pick up in verse 17, and here's what we read. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had preached magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Folks, something significant has just taken place here. The culture of this city is starting to shift through the proclamation of the gospel in Ephesus. The people in Ephesus prided themselves on the knowledge that came from books. In fact, in Ephesus was one of the largest libraries in all the known world at this time. This is a library where you could go and you could learn anything you needed to learn about anything that was known about in this world at this time. But now what we see is that all of a sudden the people's library books are being burned, specifically the books that have to do with dark arts or with magic. 
These people have come to realize that they are messing with the wrong stuff and that everything that they've been truly looking for in life is actually found in Jesus. We read there that the name of Jesus is being exalted. That means it's being lifted high. For the first time, the preeminence of the goddess Diana is being questioned. At no other time in the history of Ephesus has this happened. It's always been all about Diana. The only name that's been on people's lips when it comes to a god or goddess is Diana. Oh, but now there's a new name on people's lips, and with the coming of that new name comes a shift in the cultural context of the city. So then we pick up reading in verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, Diana, brought no little business to the craftsmen. In other words, nobody's buying them, and so he doesn't have any orders to give to the craftsmen. These he gathered together, these craftsmen he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may, be, may even be deposed from her magnificence, of whom all Asia and the world worship. Demetrius is stirring everybody up, stirring the pot here. He's saying not only may our, our, our wealth may be taken away, our livelihood may be taken away, oh, but Diana may be deposed. <laughs> Can I tell you that any God that might be deposed by mankind is not a God at all? I continue reading on here in verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater. The theater set about 26,000 people altogether. It was massive. Dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus. Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense for the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know what the city of Ephesians is, that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. In other words, they're not speaking ill of Diana. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. If you continue reading there in Acts chapter 20, what you're going to find is that Paul leaves for Macedonia. And we know that the church in Ephesus continues to thrive. It begins to grow and, and, and to thrive just from this. Now I want to talk for a few moments about idols. 
And I'm going to start with this quote from Tim Keller. Here's what he says. Any life that is not built on God's glory and God's grace is going to be built on the deification of some other possession or quality object. What is the foundation of your life, of my life, built on? What is our foundation built on? Is it built on promoting the glory and the grace of God? Or is it built on the deification of some other possession or quality object? Deification just means the promotion of. I find myself often wrestling. (laughs) You know this. You know, because it happens to you too. You find yourself wrestling between promoting God's glory and then whatever it is I want. Now, one of the things we find here in Acts chapter 19 is that the believers, um, they're, they're, we don't see them struggling with these idols, okay? The, the example that we've given here in Acts 19 is that the unbelievers are fighting against God. They're fighting for their idols. But if you look in the context of really the entire New Testament, you see over and over and over again that the, the writers are, are telling the believers, get rid of this in your life. Get rid of this idol that you've got in your life. Move on from this. One of the things that um, we understand from, from reading this is that idols can have such a strong stranglehold. There's no other way to say it. Stranglehold on people that they're willing to go to whatever means necessary to hold on to them. Sometimes they're willing to fight like Demetrius was. Sometimes they just want to hide it, do anything they can to hide the idol that's in their heart. That tells me that there's a struggle for a person. It's not just in releasing those idols at salvation, but there's a struggle in even after salvation. How do I get rid of these idols in my life? They keep coming up. So how do we deal with the idols in our lives? And that's what I want to talk about here for just a few moments. How do I deal with the idol that comes up in my life? And and number one, before anything else, you have to embrace the gospel. I want to encourage you to write these things down, okay? Because we're going to move through them fairly quickly, but you're going to want to hold on to this. How do I deal with the idol in my life? Number one, you embrace the gospel. You embrace the gospel. It's not until the gospel is sweet that our sin will become bitter. It's not until the gospel is sweet to us that our sin will become bitter. How many of you know what it tastes like to put something in your mouth that is bitter? Yeah, right? Which would you rather do, put something in your mouth that is sweet or bitter? Sweet. Sweet. Thank you, Jeff Phelink. I agree with you. Because when you put something in your mouth that's sweet, it's something that you, you hold on to, that you, that you love. You're like, this is amazing, right? You put something in your mouth that's bitter, and you're like, oh, oh I don't want that. Get that away from me. Earlier we sang the words, in essence, the gospel. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day, he's coming. Oh, glorious day. How many of you are looking forward to that day? Yeah. Folks, it's only when we embrace the reality that Jesus paid everything, that he did everything that was possible, or everything that was needed for us. To have life. It's only when we hold on to that that we're going to even begin to get rid of the idols that are in our lives. The Apostle Paul knew that. So anytime he confronted an idol, anytime he, he, he said, get rid of this, what he did first is he made sure the people understood this is the gospel, that Jesus came to this earth and came into a situation where I could do nothing to save myself. 
He came and he lived, he died for me, but then he gave me victory over that sin. He gave me victory over death by his resurrection. Paul always, always starts there, and then he moves on to this next thing. ID the idols. ID the idols. How many of you have seen at least one cop TV show or, or, or movie, right? Yes, most of us in this room, and if, if you've seen one, then there's a good chance that you would have heard the phrase, ID the perp, right? And if you're not street savvy, that just means simply identify the perpetrator, all right? Y'all got that? We're tracking here? We got to identify the idol. What kind of idol is in my life? What am I putting up on a pedestal saying, and I may not be outright worshiping it, but you know what? I'm flirting with it, and it's taking preeminence over God. What are those things? Well, there's some signs that come up that show us when we've got an idol in our life. For example, anger could be a sign of an idol in your life. Bitterness could be a sign of an idol in your life. Anxiety could be a sign of an idol in your life. Greed, working too much or working too little. Those are all signs of idols in our lives. We have to identify the idols in our lives before we can do anything about them. So number one, we embrace the gospel, embrace exactly what it was that Jesus has done for us, the life that we have in him. Number two, we identify the idol. What is that idol? But then number three, we confront that idol. We confront that idol. Every single time Paul preached, he confronted the idols in people's lives and in the culture. And sometimes those were literal idols, like the people in the culture in Ephesus would have had. In fact, they would have walked around with little statues of Diana. That way, when they went to make transactions and when they were doing their business, hopefully Diana would be paying attention and she would bring them great blessing and great wealth as a result of that transaction. Hey, Diana, I brought you along on my, my business meeting with me, right? Now, would you bless me from this business that I'm doing or from this transaction or trading at the market or whatever it is? Sometimes those were literal idols just like that. But sometimes the idols that Paul confronted were the idols of working to earn God's favor, to earn God's blessing. Many times throughout his epistles as he's writing to believers, there's these believers who thought that on top of the grace of God, something else is expected of them in order for God to be truly pleased with them. Paul confronted the thought that Jesus plus works earned them heaven. And he showed them that Jesus plus nothing equals heaven. The problem with Jesus plus works is that it is an idolatrous belief system that is grounded in our false belief that we can provide salvation for ourselves. Jesus, I've got you here, but if I do this and this and this and this and this and this, then I'm really saved. But that's not right. Because all that's doing is pointing back to ourselves as an idol saying, I can provide salvation for myself, when in reality, we can't. There is nothing good enough that we can do to provide ourselves salvation. Paul also confronted the idols of possessions. Multiple times in his epistles, he confronted people who were stingy with the resources that God had loaned to them. He knew that every good and perfect gift comes from God to be used for the glory of God and the good of man. The idol of possessions or the idol of money, had to be confronted multiple times. You know, at the beginning, I told you that at the core of sin is idolatry. Ultimately, 
We are putting what we want or what we believe on a pedestal over God. And to do so is nothing short of sin. There is no God like our God. There is no God anywhere like our God. Anytime a person truly embraces the gospel, they are saying, I know that I am nothing. But I know that through Jesus, I am everything. And then they start identifying the idols in their lives. You know what? I've got this idol that tells me my possessions are more important than God. What's the sign for that? Oh, I, I can tell that that's my idol because I'm stingy with my resources. Or you know what? I've got a, there, there's a sign in my life that just shows that, that I am an angry person. And ultimately, I believe what I think and what I hold valuable is more important than what other people think or what they hold valuable. And when they think that they are right, then I get angry. Embrace the gospel. Identify the idols. What is the idol that I am flirting with? What is the idol that I'm outright worshiping? But then lastly, confront that idol. Confront that idol. It's the exact example that Paul gives say, well, how in the world do we do that? I'm going to get to that here in just a moment. If we're not confronting idols with the gospel, though, then we're never really going to bring any real lasting change. Because we can try all day long. You know what? I need to get rid of this. I need to get rid of this. But if we're not going back to the gospel as the central source of power for what's happening, it's never going to happen. Tim Keller, um, from the quote that I gave you earlier, he goes on to say this. He said, that's been one of the scandals of the evangelical church. There are all these people having born-again experiences but never demonstrating any real difference from the outside world. The difference from where Paul preached the gospel was so great that it even affected the economy. Folks, if we want to see our world change, that it's going to come through the proclamation of the gospel and dealing with the idols that we've got in our lives. As people see how sweet the glory and the grace of Jesus is, that sin is going to start to become bitter, and that's where we see lasting change. That's where we see change in our individual lives, in our church, in our city, in our country, in the world. That's where we start to see change. If you're going to glorify God with your life and truly impact your world, then a part of your story, get this, a part of your story has got to be an embracing of the gospel, an IDing of the idols, and a confronting of those idols. Now, I wish that we could look at the Ephesian church and say, you know what, they did such a great job. And in some ways they did. For generations, we, we would want to say, they, they, they lasted and they, they finished well, but they didn't. In fact, turn your Bibles over to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Jesus is speaking here, and here's what he's, he's writing, starting in verse 1. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is Jesus speaking. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. 
Yet this you have. You hate the, way, the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. But this I have against you, he says. But this I have against you. And here's what we should all learn from this. We should never let our guard down when it comes to the idols of the heart. Never let your guard down when it comes to the idols of the heart. Folks, no matter how successful we are to defeat the idols that come up in our lives, there is always going to be the temptation to love ourselves over loving God. The strongest idol you will continually confront and be forced to defeat is always the idol of yourself. Always. The idol that loves kivet more than God. You're always going to be tempted to love yourself more than God. I love what Jesus has to say to his church here in Ephesians, Revelation 2. He, he, he confronts them head on. You have left your first love. They have, they have left him. Even though they're doing a lot of right things, good things, but he doesn't stop there. He shows them. He says, here's how, to, here's how to turn that around. Here's how to confront that idol. Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember the gospel. Hold on to that. Repent and do the works that you did at first. Remember where you started. Remember the strongholds of sin, the idolatry that was broken in your life. Remember the great grace that was offered to you. Remember the power of Jesus that did that in your life. Repent of your newfound idolatry that's all wrapped up in yourself. Go back to living in total surrender and absolute devotion to Jesus. I can't help but think that even as we're here today, there's some people who you might could identify as like, like Demetrius there in Acts chapter 19, where you love your idol so much and you love the wealth that it can bring you and you love the status that it can bring you and you love the comfort that it can bring you, that you're willing to fight with everything inside of you against God. But then there's also probably some people in this room today who would identify a little bit more closely with the people in the Ephesian church, not in Acts 19, but in Revelation chapter 2. You're doing a lot of really good things. You're saying a lot of really profound things maybe even, but you've lost your first love. You've moved away from that first love. Folks, I want to encourage you, just as a, as a response to what we've talked about here today, no matter where you fall in this, I want to encourage you to simply ask Jesus today if he's your first love. That's it. I'm going to leave it really simply with you. Just ask Jesus, are you my first love? Or is there other things inside of my life, inside of my heart, my mind that, that you know what, I'm putting on a pedestal over you. I love those things more than I love you. Jesus, are you my first love? And you know what? In, in that moment, it might not be that, that you have this lightning bolt moment where all of a sudden you realize, oh, yeah, it's this. But if you continue asking that question, then what God's going to do is he's going to mold and shape in you an understanding of the ways that you put yourself over Jesus. It's exactly how it will work. Jesus, are you my first love? Let's pray together.
Oh, Father, I'm thankful for this story. And it's, it's a, even an entertaining story to read. Oh, but Father, it points to something deep inside of all of us that longs for, that pursues what we want over what's right. That, that Father wants to promote us rather than promote Jesus. That loves self more than we love Jesus. So, Father, as we go from this place today here in just a few moments, would you show us what it means to love Jesus more than anything else? Father, we don't want that same indictment that Jesus had against the Ephesian church. We don't want for Jesus to look at us and say, you're doing everything right, but you've lost your first love. Father, I pray, show us what it looks like to love you well. And Father, the areas in which we're not, may we embrace the gospel because it's only in the gospel that we will find the power to deal with the idols of the heart. Father, may we identify those idols and then when we confront them, we repent of them. Father, we love you, but we only love you because you first loved us. We thank you for sending Jesus to die in our place. And it's in his holy and precious name I pray. Amen.